0: So this is part 13. It's called, When I Am Weak. The thorn that builds the mighty man. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. This is an interesting way of looking at it. The thorn that builds the mighty man. So how is a mighty man of God built? And very few of us would say, through a thorn. Oh, that's, that's what every mighty man needs. Where's the thorn? We need a thorn. Could someone bring in a thorn? We want to build up a strong man here and yet that's actually the way it works. And we're going to see Paul rehearse this truth. One of the things I would say about Paul is the early church was similar to us. At first, they're going to have a mental uh, perspective towards suffering and difficulty and tribulation that is going to cause them to push it away. Paul is going to bust through that and say, guys, follow me. I think we've discovered something. The model of Christ is that when we are willing to lay down our lives, when we are willing to suffer, when we are willing to go through difficulty, it actually increases our strength. And everyone's looking at Paul going, are you sure about that? And Paul is going to be like this front lines guy. You could almost summarize the book of Acts by saying he's demonstrating this fact. And yet, for many of us, we still hesitate when Jesus says, follow. And then Paul says, Follow. We're like, hey, I just want to wave at you and just sort of have a good doctrinal understanding of what you did, but not necessarily follow that. And so as a result, we find ourselves needing to have a fresh vision of what builds a mighty man. So Second Corinthians 12, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I should be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong." So if we were just to take the entire time and break this down, it is so fascinating in and of itself. I mean, there are certain lines in there that are hard to even comprehend if we think about them from our natural man vantage point. You need a supernatural mind to convert you so that you can spiritually discern this, grip this, and grasp this. Listen to this. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities. Okay, just try and chew on that line. Most gladly... I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If you knew that in and through your infirmities, the power of Christ could rest upon you, and what were you after? You wanted the power of Christ resting upon you. But your infirmity is sort of a secret to that. So he's like, oh, this infirmity is great because the power of Christ, as a result of it, can rest upon me. So that's not the way most of us think. Therefore, this is a conclusive statement, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses. So you could break down that sentence and say it this way. I take pleasure in infirmities. But you could also say, I take pleasure in reproaches. I take pleasure in needs. How many of you have ever said that? I take pleasure in persecutions. Oh. I take pleasure in distresses. Because if they're for Christ's sake... When I'm weak in these situations, that's my secret of strength. I had a, a season of my life not that long ago, okay, and I've had many of these, but this was of a longer nature than some of my other trials. And so I've oftentimes said that I learned the difference between suffering and long-suffering. Never really thought about it. Just, you know, the word long suffering's out there, but it's like I'm assuming that what I have is that, right? Until you have long-suffering... And the suffering lasts a long time, and then you're like, oh, okay, I now understand what that means. And this was a long stretch of time where it was like a thorn. That's a good description, just sort of pressing into my soul every day, every moment of every day, in the night, in the morning, first thing when I wake up, it's pressed in there. It just wasn't going away. It was a very real thing. And yet, you would, if you'd watched me, I was very happy throughout the whole thing, Right? but that's because there was a great grace upon me in the midst of it. But here's in the midst of that, I didn't always associate that great grace that was upon my life with the fact that I had a thorn. In fact, what was I asking God to do? Remove the thorn? Please, Lord. And I had a a distinct conversation. It wasn't an audible exchange. It was an understanding that was reached between me and God. And it was something like this, if I could put words to it. Lord please, remove this. Eric, you know that intimacy that you share with me right now? You know that closeness, that, that warmth of my presence that is like very thick in your life right now? Yes, Lord. You see, that is a result of your extreme dependence upon me. And it's actually, because of this thorn, it opens up a channel for me to enter in at a greater level in your life. Do you want me to take this from you? Knowing that. And here's here's an interesting statement. That was a very, very painful thing that I was walking through. And I, with my own intelligence, said heavenward, no, I would rather have your presence. I would rather have that closeness and have this pain. So there's a lot of you that could probably very quickly brush up against a similar thing in your life. And where our plea is oftentimes to get rid of it, instead of pulling the Paul twist, he's like flipping the whole situation. He's like, this is actually my secret. Now in this scripture, you're going to see this thorn comes from the devil. It's not a God-born thorn, and yet God is leveraging it to the fullest extent. As long as the devil presses in, God's saying, well, you're opening up a channel for my grace to flow into my son's life. Thank you, devil, in a strange way. Uh, I don't think he's actually thanking the devil for his work, but, you know, hey, this is working. So introducing the man of smashed head. I've oftentimes referred to Paul as the man of smashed head. Technically, I can't prove it. But it's an intriguing thing. There's multiple things in Paul's writings, you know, where he's writing with big writing. And there's also statements throughout Christian history that many people felt that was a result of his stoning when he was stoned. Because when you're stoned, your head is smashed. I don't know if you guys have ever studied stoning. It's not the most pleasant thing to study. Uh, But they don't just take little pebbles and throw them at your toes and say, ah, you're stoned. Uh, No, they knock you down and they take big boulders and they crush your skull. Paul was stoned. That's a strange thing to go through, right? But as a result, when I call him the man of smashed head, it's possible, and this is just, it's one theory throughout Christian history that one of the, one of the things that could have been Paul's thorn, because it was in his body, was that he had a smashed head. Okay, I always picture sort of this funny pancake-like head, right? Uh, two eyeballs sticking out the side. Uh, but I don't know. But at the same time, that could have caused great challenges for him in his life. So Acts 14, 19, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, if someone is stoned, when do you finish a stoning? When someone dies. You don't actually just say, "Uh, that's good enough. You're killing someone. It's a capital punishment is what it is. And so as a result, Paul either was close to dead and didn't somehow die, or he died and was raised again. I always sort of like the second. It just sounds a little more, you know, grand. Paul the Apostle. So Acts 13, 9, then Saul, who also is called Paul. To most of us, we don't actually take much notice at that. We just notice that he was called Saul, and then at a certain point in the story, they seem to start referring to him as Paul, which is true. And yet, the two names are very different from one another. They sound very similar, but one is like strong, and that's Saul. Paul is a, it's a quirky sort of weak name. And you know, some of you in here are like, that's my name. What are you saying, Eric? I, I, I'm saying it's sort of quirky and weak. Now, because it represents Paul the apostle, it's a great name. Okay. The same thing is true with Jacob. It means you know heel grabber, deceiver, supplanter. You know, And it's like, who would want that name? Uh, at the same time, it's a good name. And the reason is we have a Jacob in the front row here. Uh <laughs> It's a great name because of what it represents. It represents one who will not let go of God until he gets all that God has for him. So it's a redeemed name. It's like a cross. A cross is a terrible thing if you want to think about it, and then people wear it around their their neck. It's sort of like bragging about it. Yeah, the cross. Well, that's like, you know, that's a terrible thing. You wouldn't wear an electric chair around your neck. And so as a result, certain things in the kingdom of heaven get changed, and that's the same with Paul. It looks weak, but is it? So listen to this, uh, just the description of these names. Shaul is the name for Saul. The guy who is sought out, asked for, requested, desired, and picked. So we have Saul in the Old Testament, you know, the first king of Israel. And this is the first name of Paul, if you want to say it that way. And he's the Pharisee of Pharisees. He's got it all together. They're laying the coats at his feet when they're stoning Stephen. He's like a lead character. And then something is going to happen in his life. He gets knocked off that horse, and he suddenly loses his cool. He loses his popularity ratings. And it's interesting because his name is no longer referred to as uh, Shaul, the guy who is sought out, asked for, requested, desired, and picked. What is his new name? It's Palos, small or little. Now, in history, Paul the Apostle is actually described as a small man, bald head and big nose, okay? That's actually his description, right? So, he wouldn't have been like this grand, you know, muscular, physique character. He would have been this small little guy, and that seems to now be what's emphasized, because what does this mean, small or little? This would be like the equivalent of Man or Tiny Wonder, or Munchkin, or Shorty, Okay, so he's swapping out names, and by the way, this isn't a compliment, okay? This is like a diminishment. It's like the name Christian. Christian didn't start out as a compliment. It's a slur. And yet, those of us that understand what's in that name, wear it proudly. And that's what you see Paul doing here. It's like, okay, you're calling me weak. I accept that. Whereas before, I, I could almost guarantee if we did a uh, some biography of Paul zoomed in and used our imaginations and created some story for it that someone growing up, you know, would call him Paul, you know, and he's like, you take that back, you know, and he's fighting, you know, in the schoolyard, you know, for his name, and he was like, my name is Saul, he's like, your parents didn't know how to name you because you're really Paul, and finally something is going to happen in his life, he's like, you know what, I'm Paul, and for many of us, we haven't come to that, And we need to land on the fact that it's okay to be Paul. So I'm going to say this about Christianity. Christianity is relinquishing the Saul title and joyfully accepting the Paul label. You see, many of us fight in, in, in our position in this world where we come to Christianity, but we still want to be popular. We still want to be sort of the leading man. We want everyone to stand up and applaud, but when we come to Christ, we are giving up the Saul title. God, I'm willing to take on your name now. And when we do, in a sense, we become Pauls. Now that sounds really good because all of us have a very positive opinion about Paul. But it's sort of like me saying, yeah, we carry crosses. And you're like, yeah, crosses, they're so good. They're so good. Well, you do know they're an execution device. What we are choosing when we come to Christ is not necessarily an easy way as defined in the natural realm. But it is the way of grace. It is the way of power. It is the way of life abundant. So as a result, we agree with it. And we say, yes, Lord. I will give up my Saul reputation. And I will take on the Paul banner. 2 Corinthians 11. So what do you get when you get the, the, the Paul banner? Now remember, when he's Saul, he's actually... Stoning Stephen, you know, and you know, he's participating in the persecution of the Christians. Now, everything switches on this guy. Now look at his life. And this is just a small taste. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep. That shit, He's just getting going. It's like, uh, how many of you want to be Saul and how many of you want to be Paul. You see, when you're Saul, you have control, you have the upper hand, you have position, you have notoriety, you have respect, you have reputation. But if you listen to Paul talk in the New Testament, he seems to have something that we should be enviable of. And, you know, we're searching hard for it. It's like, where is this something that we're supposed to be enviable of? That sure doesn't sound good, Paul. Well, what did you get out of this, Paul? Paul's like, you don't see it, do you? you don't realize that I have found something so much greater than what I could have ever found as Saul. But as Paul, when I allowed God to make me weak, when I accepted that role that he had called me to, I found the vestibule of heaven, the entryway into the throne room of grace. I found access under the warm presence of my God, and nothing can take that away from me introducing Paul's temporary home. We could call it the land of thorns. You just happen to live there too. Genesis 3, then to Adam he said, cursed is the ground for your sake, both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. There's a lot of thorns in the world we live in. And so talk about an opportunity. It's sort of like living in a world with exercise equipment at every turn. Like, as a, as a guy, now, this is very Eric Lute-ish. I don't, and I know there's at least one other student in here. I don't remember which one it was, but I'm always looking for a place to do dips. I don't know if you guys know what dips are, but if ever there's a counter with a, you know, that comes into a corner and no one's around, I'll do some dips on it. And it's sort of like a guy jumping up and touching something that's above him, like if, you know, looks around and then jumps up. And when you're young, you don't even look around. You just jump up and touch it. When you're older, you look around and then jump up and touch it. <laughs> but it's like a world full of exercise equipment. So it's like you're just walking down, it's like, oh, there's an exercise bike, and you get on it. You come over here, and there's oh, there's a squat rack. You do some squats. And you see, that's a weird form of life, but that's what we live in. We live in a world full of opportunities to grow stronger. But most of us look at those things as things to stay far and away from, the challenges that we the thorns. It's like, oh, there's a thorn. Watch out for thorns. Every parent raises their child, go, watch out for thorns. Don't even get within 10 feet of that thorn. And as a result, we miss the exercise equipment. Could you imagine? It's like, oh, stay away from that exercise equipment. It could harm you. As opposed to, it's like, could you imagine a parent saying, all right, you see all these opportunities we have in life to get strong? All right. Every time you see an, an extra piece of exercise equipment, ask God, God, can I stop? Can I do some exercise in here? Who knows? He might say yes every time. Let's find out. It's a different mentality that Paul has that we have not had. But if we were to recognize that being in a land of thorns, even though those thorns are sponsored by the devil, actually means opportunity for an increase of grace and strength in our lives. So this whole series is called Daring to Do with Stanley Dale, and I've spent very little time on Stanley Dale. However, you know what today is? Today is an introduction of Stanley Dale's childhood. Isn't that fun? And so I, we, we go from, what, it took me 13 uh, lessons to get here. Uh, Stanley Dale's temporary home. It was also known as a, a land of thorns. This guy grew up. He's going to become one of the most extraordinary missionary examples in the last 100 years. Where does such a strong man come from. He came from extreme pain, extreme challenge. This guy had exercise equipment at every turn. So Sadie Dale, who was interviewed after Stan's death, I'm I'm trying not to give any spoilers away, but yes, Stan Stan Dale did die. He was born in 1916, so he'd be rather old if he hadn't, right? But she was uh, interviewed after his death. And this is how she describes the childhood home of the Dale family. Our childhood was hell, fear. We never knew when we went to school what we would come home to. When Stan was just a tiny thing, if he came in one minute late, dad would belt him. We were afraid of the drink, afraid of his temper, of the gun, of seeing mother faint before his rage. We were very nervous. Like mother, I wanted to close my mind off to the reality. He had a very, very unstable home. I'm not going to go into great detail, but I'm going to give you enough for you to recognize something about this man. He had it difficult, and yet, what is he going to do with that difficulty? He's going to leverage it in the kingdom of heaven into literally one of the most extraordinary lives you could ever study. He was known as the weakling. Okay, so there's a parallel between little Paul, you know, uh, Saul, hey, my name's Saul, and Saul. Stanley Dale. You can just sort of feel the same tensions. Don Richardson uh, is the one that wrote the book Lords of the Earth, where that's where Stanley Dale's story is is told. It is a fantastic book. It is a little challenging for young children uh, if you're a parent trying to figure out, should I read this aloud in my home? Um, it's a little challenge. You may want to read it first. Uh, When we took Hudson through it quite a few years ago, we sort of skipped the first five chapters and then started, if that gives you an indication. But those first five chapters, which go into the state of the Yali people, which are headhunter cannibals, is very hard to read, but very significant to understand what this man is entering into. And you have a whole new appreciation for how God built him uniquely for the challenge that he is going to face. Stanley also ran a daily gauntlet of abuse at school. Unusually small and angular for his age, he attracted constant taunting and beating from older boys. The wounds went deep. One day, a gang of bullies encircled him on the way home from school. Whichever way he faced, someone pushed him from behind and then laughed as he sprawled. Weakling, why can't you stand up straight? Bounced back and forth like a squash ball. He finally burst into tears, which occasioned still more raucous derision. But it was not this experience that inflicted his deepest wound. Finally, he reached home, clothes thoroughly muddied and sobbed, his sad story to his father, sniffing. And they called me a weakling. Walter Dale sneered down at this muddy, awkward mop fate had flipped him for a son. They're right. You are a weakling. Then he turned and walked away. For a few seconds, tears welled afresh. But then something hardened inside Stanley. Something that said, if I'm a weakling, then why don't you tell me how I can be strong? You're my father, but you won't teach me how to be strong. But his father's very indifference told him bluntly, find out for yourself. And that is what Stanley set out to do. So we have this little guy, this weakling, that has no idea how to find strength, how to be strong, and he's going to go on his own venture to become strong. Kipling's If. So, you know, I have a son named Kipling who's actually named after this poem. Uh, so uh, that, this is significant. And so, uh, Kip, this is sort of fun uh, for you to hear too. But the most, outside of Christ, the most impressionable thing in his life, because he didn't have parents that could impart things, he didn't grow up in the church, was this one poem. And this one poem was like a map for his soul to say, so that's what it means to be a man. And so this one poem, even though it was unable to save him, it actually ended up steering him towards Christ. And so all throughout his life, this is the thing that he is going to repeat to himself as he's, as he's uh, hiking over the impossible passes. And some of his stories are so excruciating, so amazing, that he is going to be repeating this to himself all throughout his life. And so I think it's important that you guys at least hear it. with triumph and disaster, and treat those two impostors just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to, broken and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch-and-toss, and lose and start again at your beginnings and never breathe a word about your loss. If you can force your heart to nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone, And so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings nor lose the common touch, if neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that is in it, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. The construction of a man. So for those of us that are familiar uh, with the Word of God, even the Word of God in text is not our Savior. It's the treasure map that leads us to the treasure, who is our Savior, and His name is Jesus Christ. And yet the value of the text is so high because it is the one thing that leads us to that great treasure. The words of Rudyard Kipling, don't save a man. But they can initially inspire a man and lift his chin upward. It's sort of the same role we can play. We're not saviors, but we can speak words that cause people's souls to be stirred, to actually look heavenward, to look upward. The construction of the man. Don Richardson continues talking about uh, Stanley Dale. When school was out, Stanley slipped that poetry book into his school bag, eluded the bullies, and fled across the fields to a lonely hilltop. There, with eager fingers, he fumbled to page 67 and poured poured again over Kipling's lines. Later that afternoon, after chores on the farm, he read it again. And after washing supper dishes once more, this time by the kerosene lamp in his bedroom, Stanley wasn't sure what Kipling meant by the unforgiving minute. But no matter, life was to teach him that quickly enough. What he did know was that Kipling, through just 32 lines of poetry, had filled the vacuum Stanley's own father left untended. So Stanley memorized the poem. Where formerly he trudged forlornly across the fields to school, now he bounced with spring in his step, shouting his poem to the clouds. When he climbed over the rustic fence back onto the road and saw the bullies waiting for the, by the schoolyard gate, he set it under his breath as his hidden ally, helping him to advance, head up, right up to their ugly scowls. And when they beat him, it kept him from weeping. For Rudyard Kipling taught him how to be strong and even called him my son. Stanley Albert Dale found a father. It's an interesting way to find it. You know, I, anytime you see one of those movies of a little, little guy like this, uh, your heart has to go out to him. And this guy is one of those little guys that truly is an orphan in every practical way, emotionally, spiritually. His mom is like insane, lives in some cuckoo land, just trying to block out reality. His dad is an alcoholic and is completely unstable. Their home is hell. And so he's holding on to this little light that he has, even though it's not the light of the gospel. It is a light. It is something that is beginning to lead him outward, which, like I said, is ultimately going to lead him to church, which is ultimately going to lead him to the cross and to his Christ. Stanley Dale had a, has a quote. And so this out of the whole uh, series, this, I don't know how many quotes we have from Stanley Dale. is maybe the only one, so Cherish it, guys. Handicaps are a compliment to a fighter. This is how he had to look at life. and This is exactly what Paul the Apostle says. It's like what, you look like, what you're looking at as a handicap in my life is actually one of my secrets of how I'm going to win. And that's how Paul the Apostle describes it. Look, and I take joy in this. Most gladly, I'm going to handle this infirmity. Why? Because this is my secret source of strength. Don Richardson continues, His smallness of stature, for example... Unable to add one cubit to his frame, Stanley decided to make what there was of him not only far wiser, but also far stronger, ounce for ounce than any of his peers. He succeeded. By dogged cross-country running and hard work on the farm, he transformed himself into a pint-sized atlas. That's a bulging, muscular guy. You have to be a little older to understand that, maybe. Bulging with miniature brawn. As his strength increased, so also did his courage. He feared nothing and would accept any dare. Let a playmate mount a sand dune and shout, I'm the king of the castle and you're the dirty rascal. Stan would quickly prove otherwise. And though his father still dismissed him as weakling, the bullies soon gave him a new title, Tuffy. For at the first sign of provocation, Stanley would always seize the initiative, no matter what the odds, and the outcome was often embarrassing. So they tried new tactics. Tuffy, see that old house? It's haunted. Don't ever go in there. Or horrible things will happen to you. Feigning fear, Stanley asked each boy in turn, true? When they had all committed themselves, confident that at last they had his nerve at bay, he suddenly smiled, sprinted into the house, raced through every room, and laughed hilariously at his would-be intimidators from an upstairs window. <laughs> Years later, when dared to swim Sydney Harbor to a certain island, Tuffy plunged in and stuck, struck out through the waves. His mates, perhaps fearing they would be held accountable if he drowned, had second thoughts and went after him by boat. They had to pluck him by force, still swimming, from tossing white caps. And if you know the story of Stanley Dale, that's Stanley Dale. Stanley Dale feared nothing. And there was something that is going to happen in his development, in and through his pain, in and through his challenge, that's going to actually make him fit to do the very work that he is called to do. Because when you enter into demonic territory where there's haunted houses everywhere, I mean, everything is haunted in the Yali village. And Stan, will remember the story, he did a handspring over the sacred wall into the Kembu Vom. He's like, ha! He doesn't fear it. Who is this guy? Where did this guy come from? He came out of weakness. He came out of pain. He came out of difficulty. This man was forged in and through fires. Every great Christian is going to attest the same. As long as we try and preserve ourselves from those refiner fires, as long as we try and preserve ourselves from the thorns, as long as we try and preserve ourselves from the challenges of life, we remain weak. When we embrace them with a smile, when we catch the vision as little Stanley Dale did, it's like there's actually something more for this weak thing. God desires to do something in this, with this. Suddenly, the storyline changes. Don Richardson continues, Thus did he emerge from his tormented childhood, toughened not only in mind and heart, but in sinew as well, rushing to meet every challenge before him, shoulders squared, chest out, spring in his step, backbone straight as a poker, head on. Paul understood thorns. See, he understood the value of a thorn, and it doesn't mean that he wasn't like, God, could you take this thorn away from me? God, hey, uh, I know I brought this up before, but could you take this thorn away from me? Hey, God, I know we've discussed this in the past, but I would really love for you to remove this thorn. It's not that he didn't pray to have the thorn removed. It's that if that thorn was going to remain, God's grace was sufficient, and he understood that. So Paul's thorn. This is four, four truths about that thorn. Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations a thorn in the flesh was given me. The second one, was a mes- it was a messenger of Satan. Third, it was given to buffet him. And fourth, lest he be exalted above measure. So these concepts, we know it comes from the enemy. We know it is a result of sin in this world. The challenges we face are architected oftentimes by the devil himself to sabotage our forward progress. Why would I want to embrace that? It's not that you cheer on the enemy's bad deeds. It's that you greet every challenge with a smile, knowing that those very challenges are the secret for the Christian. We live in hostile territory, and God doesn't seem to mind. You ever thought about that? It's like, God, why don't you take all these thorns away? When you died on the cross and you said it was finished, why didn't you finish that part of it? He finished everything that was required in heaven. Down here, we still live in an old world, and we live in old bodies. God, why didn't you change that? That would have made so much sense. Imagine, even if it was an old world, okay? But we had new bodies, and you could stick a thorn in us, and we're like, ha-ha! We don't even feel it. We could walk through walls. I mean, we, oh, we could fly around maybe. I mean, oh, wouldn't that be great? Some bad guys are coming after us, and we'd like flutter out of there. <laughs> God, we could have thought this through a little better. Instead, you left me in this old body. And God, I'm looking around. This is the old world too. How about a new world and a new body? He goes, not yet. Well, God, did you think this through? Because, I mean, that doesn't make any sense. Why would you finish that work and leave this still undone. And yet what I just described for you is what the stage is that Paul is building for us to understand. He's like, don't you guys realize that this is very much on purpose and this is your secret of strength? That as we embrace the old world with our old bodies and the challenges that all come with that, that we find the grace of heaven, that finished work entering into us and flowing through us in and through old bodies in an old dying world scallops. This is the word for thorn. This is what it means. It's a pointed piece of wood, a pail, a sharp stake, a splinter. This word can technically mean anything pointed. Paul uses this word indicating a tool of Satan wielding against him to buffet him. He calls it a scallops in the flesh or the body, indicating something that greatly affected him in his physical being that tried him in his body, possibly through bodily pain and the humiliation that came from whatever physical ailment he may have been suffering from. The confusion over thorns, an exercise in biblical thinking and reasoning. So we'll just reason together. A thorn is from the devil. Okay, that's what it said even in 2 Corinthians. It's a messenger of Satan. It's an operation of the power of sin. God hates sin. God has defeated sin. Sin has no power over the believer. God is not subject to sin, nor are those who are in him subject to its power. Yay! The strange injection into our cheery biblical thoughts. But though God proved victorious on the cross, he has left his children in a world still under sin's control. What? And he has left them in bodies still subject to the old laws of decay and death. Hmm. And then it even gets more strange. And when we look heavenward to ask, why, dear Lord, does his bodily weakness and human frailty remain, we see that he is not in the least bit moved with concern over this fact. He's not apologizing as if to indicate that this current bodily weakness that we find ourselves in was some bizarre oversight on his part. In fact, he seems to be pleased to have us here on this darkened globe in these old bodies. Furthermore, he indicates in his word that it is through this strange old world setup that he intends to work out our salvation, to exercise our faith unto maturity, and to reveal the person of Jesus Christ for all the world to see. Get this. He has purposely rescued us this way. He has purposely left us in the land of thorns that we might, in and through suffering, prove a genuine faith, reveal the glory of Jesus Christ, and show forth unto the heavenly realms the manifold wisdom of God. He's not shocked that we are in the land of thorns. I know, brace yourselves for this one, guys. He wants us here. He wants us in a land of thorns. God, God, what? I, I'm sure you had a better thought for me than this. Why would you plant me in a, in a land of thorns? You know what's interesting about this? and Of course, you'll see why I'm picking these particular stories to link with what uh, Stanley Dale is called to. He's called to <clears throat> a land of thorns. And that's a pretty good description. Remember, I used the word scallops. To descri- that's the Greek word for thorn. But what is it, a pointed thing? Can you think, for those of you that have gone through the first, what, 12 episodes of this series, can you think of anything pointed in the lands uh, that Stanley Dale is going to? The plants, the sago plants in Papua New Guinea have six-inch-long thorns. Talk about a land of thorns. And, you know, when you, if you had your family over there, can't you just imagine? It's like, okay, honey, I want you to stay in the Yogwa. That's like their little homes. You stay here all day long because there's death adders out there, there's crocodiles out there, and there's six-inch sago thorns. Stay here. And yet the only way to reach those people is to risk the thorns. He has given us, he has, he has us here on purpose, even knowing full well that his children will suffer greatly due to this fact. He has us here on purpose, and he has a gigantic smile of confidence on his almighty face. Now, most of us have a yikes to that one. We're like, what? What's he smiling for? Now, let me get this straight. We are Christians seated in heavenly places, secured in Christ Jesus. Luke 10, 19. Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. These are facts, guys. It's not like they're contradictory truths. They're facts. They all work together. Mark 16. They, those that believe on him, will take up serpents, and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. These are powerhouse scriptures. Acts 28, but he, Paul, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. That's a pretty big deal uh, when a a deadly viper grabs a hold of your hand and bites it. Okay, I mean, you're a dead guy, and every one of the, the tribes' people knew that on the island. They're like, oh, he's a goner. He must be a bad guy. And then he shakes it off in the fire. It's like, no big deal. He's like probably, you know, roasting a marshmallow. And, uh, and then he's like, ah, I don't need that. And he just like shakes it off and they're like watching. And then pretty soon they decide, he's not a bad guy, he's a god. You know, they, these guys are rather unstable. But this is a picture of the one that has said, basically, follow me as I have followed Christ. You know, Christ says, hey, follow me. And then Paul says, hey, I'm following Christ, follow me, follow Christ. And then we're watching this supernatural demonstration of old body in old world, but not allowing the old body in the old world to dictate, but allowing the Spirit of God to dictate. To say, at any point in time, God is greater than this natural realm. That even though we're in an old body, in an old world, that God is still greater than both. But we are still in old bodies on an old dying earth, which means our life circumstances are still vulnerable to practical thorns, our bodies are still vulnerable to physical thorns, and our hearts and minds are still subject to the buffeting of verbal thorns. And get this, God wants it this way for now. Not forever. Haste the day, Lord, that our faith would be made sight, that the clouds would be rolled back as a scroll, Oh Lord, we desire to be home with you. We desire a new world in new bodies with our king reigning in physical presence. Oh Lord, we want to bend our knee now before you. We know in the future that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord to the glory of God the Father. But could we hasten that? Could we quicken the pace? Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. This has always been the cry of the church. For 2,000 years, it's been the cry of the church. And it's not just the church. It says the Spirit and the the bride say, come. The Spirit of God has been praying for 2,000 years. That should encourage your prayer life right there, to recognize that not every prayer is answered in your generation, but to recognize that certain prayers transcend generations, that we hold on and we don't let go. But there is an ache, there is a groaning in our midst, and it's not necessarily bad because it leads us to a dependence upon the one that we need to save us. We need something from another realm. If we were self-sufficient, we would stop calling for it. If we had new bodies, just imagine our propensity, and we could handle, you know, the Yali tribe just by sticking our hand out like this, and then they were like, oh, I believe. And we're like, that was easy. Instead, we have to enter in with weakness which makes us vulnerable, and they have taunts and they have pressures that we then need something to respond with. We need grace. We need boldness. We need courage. See, these aren't native to us. So what do we need? We need faith. We need dependence. God has purposely set it up this way so that we would grow strong through this dynamic of old bodies in old world. How many of us have had the thought, Jesus, if you saved me to get me to heaven, then why am I not there yet? Why did you leave me down here? It seems to be a massive oversight, a clerical error or something. God, why wouldn't you just bring me home? Because he wants us here. He has a job for us to do here. His end game is more than just getting you into heaven. There's a reward of his suffering, and he has purchased us with his blood, and he desires to reveal to this world. And to the heavenly realms, the manifold wisdom of God in and through us, the church. This is his game plan. We just argue against it. We're like, God, but can't you just make my life easier? I'm a Christian. It should come easier. I'm a child of the Most High God. You'd think they would treat me better than this. Do you remember how they treated me? He could say to us. He said, You represent me. And so we understand that we are sheep in the midst of wolves, but In that, we are more than conquerors. It's this unique dynamic that is taking place. This is our assignment, to walk through this land of thorns for the stretch of time we have been assigned triumphantly. Will we endure thorns? Absolutely. Will thorns at times appear to have hindered us or nullified our call? Most certainly. But can the thorns of Satan hinder the calling of God upon our lives? Not on your life. In fact, it is these very thorns that God has chosen to use as his primary means of showing forth his power, his strength, and his glory through us, his children. Thorns are not from God, but thorns are used by God. It's an interesting thing. If I were to say, okay, was the cross built by God or was it built by the enemy? It's a unique thing because we know that the whole device of the cross was understood even in the Old Testament. It's 750 years before the cross, Isaiah 53 was written, detailing out that cross. A 1,000 years before the cross, Psalm 22 was written, detailing out, hands and feet being pierced, uh, casting lots for clothing, encircling him, and saying the very quotes that are going to be said a 1,000 years later. So didn't God architect the cross? It's an interesting thought process to go through. Here's what we know. Satan entered Judas. We know that those priests and those uh the teachers of the law and that Sanhedrin were seeking to kill and murder Jesus. We do know that they wanted him dead. We do know that the device of murder at the time was constructed by the Romans, which was a very godless society. And they construct this painful apparatus that can bring torture and bring a message to the entire onlooking world. You follow him, this is what you get. It's a a good system for justice. You want to scare people from misbehaving, just stick them on a cross. And everyone can witness, yeah, you're next if you want to do what he's doing. Constructed by the evil one. Everything about it. When they're scourging him and when they're pinning him on that, that's done by godless people. And yet God is in complete control. God is leveraging the entire situation. It's like the ultimate chess move. The enemy's like, ha-ha! And God's like, ha-ha, knocks over their king. The enemy cannot outwit our God, and he cannot outwit our God in our lives. He's not outwitting our God right now, even though it would seem, because so many people are caught up in conspiracies. They're concerned about what the enemy is doing, but look at them. They're getting away with it. No one is getting away with it. God is going to get away with what he is going to do. He will accomplish His ends. They will be done just as He has told us. Watch what our God is going to do. That is our position as Christians. Our job is not to try and just remove all thorns from this earth, even though that would be a great desire. That's His job. Our job is to live triumphantly with His grace in the midst of this hour, where there are real thorns that will affect our mindsets and will challenge our thinking. They will challenge our physical bodies. They will challenge us in practical ways. And yet how we respond to that is the key. If we leverage it and do a handspring over it, it becomes a strengthening point for us, which really frustrates the devil. God takes all things the enemy means for evil and turns it to good. We see that very statement from Joseph to his brothers. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's a principle throughout the ages. That's just a God principle. Even though evil is meant, and Satan's behind that evil, God is leveraging even the evil into his plan. Romans eight twenty eight, a fan favorite. He works all things for good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. So again, that's a Pauline statement right there. The same mentality. Guys, why would we fear any of these things, because all things are going to work for good. That's not just the good things that are happening that work for good. This is all things, which means the evil things, the junk things, the hard things, the thorns that we've prayed, God, remove this. How could there be any positive benefit to this, which many of us have thought about COVID that way? God, just awaken someone in the midst of this to go, this is dumb. And if everyone would just, you know, it would start to, to transfer through other people like, it's dumb. I think it's dumb too. This is dumb. It's like the emperor has no clothes and we need someone to stand up and go, uh, he's naked. And then everyone's like, oh, well, he sees it too. Oh, he sees it. It's dumb, right? This is a bad way to handle anything. There's better ways to do it. I think we could put some children in charge of this and handle it better, right? That's how most <laughs> of us are thinking. And yet, this is happening it's a real thorn for us. So how do we handspring over it? How do we see this leverage unto greater strength in our life? So if there are pressures that come upon our life because of this, if you happen to be, like I was saying, that alumni from New Zealand that's in lockdown, solitary lockdown, in a room and can't even go out to buy food how does that get leveraged? Well, if you were solitary confinement, if you've studied Christians that are in solitary confinement in prison cells and they get out and they say, it was the most amazing time with Jesus I've ever had. It doesn't have to be a negative. Even though it's sponsored by evil, it doesn't have to have an outcome of evil. And so as a result, that's what we as Christians specialize in. The man ideally suited for dark mountain yali. The yali people are arguably the toughest crowd to win for Christ out of all of Erie and Jaya, Papua New Guinea. They are so satanically controlled and their entire system of what we could call spiritism, fetishes, and dependence upon it makes them impermeable to the gospel. That someone coming into their ranks that would dare challenge any of that, like Stanley Dale is about to challenge them, is going to be quickly eliminated And these people would intimidate anyone, even the way they dressed, everything about their makeup, uh, their, uh, I don't want to describe their clothing too detailed, but everything about it was meant to intimidate, everything. So the entire culture is designed to intimidate an outsider. You dare mess with us. They looked at themselves as lords of the earth. That's where the name of the book comes from they didn't know that there were other people out there that were a lot stronger than them, that there were weapons out there that could immediately just annihilate their village. They didn't know that. They thought they dominated this island. This is their entire perspective. Stanley Dale is going to be called to that people, and God knows it. God loves that people, and he wants to reach that people. So what does he need? He needs someone prepared for that people. And so what does he find? He finds this little weakling in Australia, who is being beaten up by the bullies. And he says, there's my raw material right there. And all of us, even the angels could look in and go, God, I think you could pick someone better than that for this. This is one of the toughest tasks any human would ever face. It's like, that's the one I want right there. God, he's nothing. He's just a little pint-sized, you know, munchkin, tiny guy. You know, he's a Paul. Oh, Oh, he's a Paul. That's exactly right. You see, God seems to have a special heart for those little munchkins, for those little weaklings. And if those little weaklings weaklings would submit to him and allow him to take them through that training ground, they become Paul the Apostles or Stanley Albert Dales. You see, this is a story for each one of us. God knows where he's calling us. He knows what he's equipping us for. The question is, are we willing to agree with that preparation? And that preparation includes thorns, But if we embrace those thorns, we are readied for the day as opposed to resisting the day. So listen to this sub line on this. Built through difficulty so as to shine in difficulty. Many of us are in difficulty and we're struggling to embrace it. But what God wants to do is mature you to the point where you're ready to shine in and through difficulty. Instead of just make it through difficulty without falling to pieces where you shine in difficulty. That's something special. The Dark Mountains, the land of six-inch thorns and hundreds of thousands of bamboo-tipped man-killing arrows. That's a pretty good description of a land of thorns, isn't it? Arrows and sagothorns. And this is the territory that Stanley Dale is called to. And in a strange sense, that's the same territory we are. It takes on different forms, but it's a land of thorns. It's a land that the inhabitants may declare that they want us removed from it, that we are the problem. I don't know if you guys have felt that lately, an ever-growing sense that we are the problem or that you are the problem. I, I get that. I'm the problem, right? I've been told that for quite a long time, long before the last few years. I'm the problem. And so I'm, it's not unfamiliar territory. It's just not fun territory. I mean, I, I'd like to be liked technically. I'd like people to go, you know, Eric, good job. We're so happy for what you're doing as opposed to you're the problem. You know, it's hard to do what we do as ministers of the gospel. There's not a lot of pats on the back, right? And so it'd be nice every once in a while to hear that you're changing society as opposed to ruining it. And so as a result, as Christians, we have to accept that what we are doing may not be construed as a positive, but we're not doing it for public approval ratings. We're doing it for him our king in heaven. We have to remember that. So Don Richardson, now I'm really trying not to give a spoiler away because I'm going to build this story, but this is so touching to me and I'm just going to give a little hint towards the future. Okay, Don Richardson is going to end up writing this biography and it's because Stanley Dale is no longer around and with us. And he is going to go and visit in Erian Jaya as a fellow missionary the place where Stanley Dale will breathe his last. And I'm going to bring you into a little meditation in that moment, hopefully not give too much away. So Don Richardson says, I walked 50 yards further to an almost identical bower where another hundred arrows pointed with soul-wrenching emphasis to the place where Stan had died. My mind drifted back, reliving for a moment my first conversation with Stan. We were walking together across a hillside above Carabaga, the wind in our face. Stan, I said, I hear that you have a wealth of great poetry stored in your memory. Please recite for me the one poem that has molded your life more than any other. Stan paused, turned, looked at me, and recited, if, with stunning intensity. Then he paused again, and after a moment said, but let me add something else, Don. I've got to the place where mere words, no matter how fine, leave me cold. All I want is the reality of knowing Christ. Enjoy it, Stan. I whispered over the ground where he died. Enjoy that reality to the full forever. The story is so powerful. And the results, so powerful. A man who was a weakling, built into a toughie, one of the toughest guys that may have ever lived on earth. When you study the guy, you're like, whoa, feared nothing. Stared it straight in the face, even to the end and loved the whole while. How do you do that? How do you combine toughness and love together? Well, study Stanley. What a unique man in history. But his story is our story. Each of us has our limitations. We have our weaknesses. We have parameters that, I can't do that. God is not calling you to something that you can do. He's calling you to something that he can do in and through you. And there's a difference between the two. Our job is to allow him to do something bigger in our life than we could accomplish in our own strength. We yield and we say, yes, Lord. Every one of these episodes, I've read the missionary motto of Stanley Dale. Going enthusiastically, sharing courageously, serving sacrificially, suffering joyfully, dying triumphantly. Father, I ask That you would ready us to say yes to your way of building saints. That you would ready us to say yes to your way of making us strong for the task. Here we are, Lord Jesus. We submit to you and ask that you would make a name for yourself in and through us, your church. It's in the precious name we pray this. This message was brought to you by the team at Ellerslie Discipleship Training. Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Listen to our weekend message live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings, or join us for Daily Thunder Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. For more information, go to live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.